Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatic, one of your co-hosts. The other co-host, of course, is Aaron Cameron. This episode today is sponsored by Wise Meter Solutions. Forward-thinking owners and managers are embracing submetering, and more of those companies are choosing Wise Meter Solutions as their partner. With 185,000 suites under contract, Wise has become synonymous with creating the efficient buildings of tomorrow your residents want today. Our guest today is a returning guest. It is Adrian Rocca, the CEO of Fitzrovia Real Estate. He did a really interesting episode with us back in December. Uh, of course, the world has changed as, as we sit here on August 14th recording. Back in December, nobody was even thinking about COVID other than, you know, you might have heard that somebody wore a mask on a plane, but you know, the world has shifted and Adrian had a great take on the apartment market then and we'd love to hear how it's shifted now and how he's adapting to the new world. So welcome back to the podcast, Adrian. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having me, guys. If you want to understand or want to know, you know, the background of Fitzrovia, what where the name came from, you know, Adrian's background is it's actually a really, really interesting story. But we're not going to repeat ourselves. So we're gonna jump right into the existing you know, moment in time, August 14th, 2020, and kind of get an update from Adrian of where he is in his business. So I encourage you to go back if you want to hear the story, but we're gonna kind of just keep rolling like it's kind of part two or episode two. Well, to set the stage for anybody that doesn't want to go back, here's the 10-second version. <laughs> Let Adrian do it. Yeah, then. Adrian, Adrian been okay. Very, 30, very active. 30 seconds. Yeah. I want yeah. you to sum up the hour-long podcast in 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> in two short years, Adrian has managed to get a very, very broad pipeline of apartments. And that was the podcast in about an hour. <laughs> <laughs> and Fitzrovia is a section of London that he lived in. That he loved living in. There you go. Right. Period. End of story. Yeah. That's well said. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we will put the episode link in the show notes. Of course, if you want to get the, the uh, broader version of what we're talking about here, it is worth listening to. And it, it was uh, fairly recent. But Adrian, let's jump into it now. You know, as we said, we're, we're months now into this new world. The developments we spoke about on your last episode are just that much closer to completion. So you want to update us on you know, where you are in terms of completing your two first very large projects? First two projects are going to complete is going to be at the end of this year. That's the Waverly Hotel Silver Dollar, uh, which is located at College and Spadina. That's 166 residential units. And then the Brixton, which is located at Queen and Dufferin, just north of Queen on the west side through the underpass. That's 400 units, 397 to be exact, and about 60,000 square feet of commercial space. I'd say over the last number of months, especially back in kind of March, April, May, uh, there's definitely a lot of anxiety on site across all of our sites. One of our sites did get shut down where we weren't at the above grade structural permits yet. We were just excavating. And so that was a hard shutdown initiated by the province. Let's say across the board, we probably saw net net a couple week adjustment to our schedule. Thankfully, there's an adjustment to the noise exemption bylaw, which allowed us to work in some cases, seven days a week from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. at night. So we experimented with double shifting. we allowed ourselves to be creative with our schedule to pick some of that time back up. But I'd say overall, there hasn't been a huge adjustment to our construction timelines. In terms of new acquisition activity, we're definitely in the market looking for new opportunities, being very careful around deal structure, around locations, around what part of the markets we're going to be ultimately targeting in terms of end consumer. Definitely veering away from kind of downtown 
you know, 450 plus rents. I think that's a very thin market today, especially with the rent adjustments and kind of looking at something that's more catered to the, what we would call the meat of the market, you know, kind of $3 to 375 a foot. We currently have with their latest development acquisition opportunity that's under contract right now, that'll put us to over 3000 units in development which is really exciting. And then the last time we chatted about the goal of ours was to control all four typical verticals. So that's asset, property management, development, and construction. And we're in the process of building out our construction team to self-perform this current deal that we have under contract. So that's going to be in place by the end of this year. And then our property management company has now been established and it's going to be managing the Waverly as of when it completes later on this year. So we're a team of 30, which has been great. It's been an amazing ride. So the last couple of months has certainly been interesting for anyone involved in the market. But thankfully, we have really supportive capital partners, joint venture partners, and a great team that's really allowed us to kind of move through that last couple of months relatively unscathed and very fortunate that that's the case. You know, Adrian, we're going to dive into all the different aspects of your business from the way you've grown your team to the individual assets. Before we get there, I mean, if anybody's had an opportunity to spend some time with Adrian, he's very cerebral and a very sort of extensive background, you know, worldly, I guess, is the word that comes to my mind. I'm curious just what your thoughts are. You know, I mentioned August 14th. We're now sort of six months into COVID, the pandemic and working from home, et cetera, et cetera. There's a whole bunch of government intervention with the economy. How is that playing out? Maybe just kind of align that with kind of how it's impacting the, the apartment market. Let's kind of break it up into development and kind of growth opportunities versus in-place income, and then maybe take a snapshot in terms of what's happening in the economy in general. So I'd say the government's done a really good job filling gaps right now with the subsidy program. My concern there is if, and, and they've done a really good job kind of opening up over the last month or so, I think it's important to keep progressing. We'll kind of park a potential second wave to the side right now, but really keep progressing in a diligent fashion, make sure we have all the procedures and policies put in place to you know, minimize or mitigate any risks associated with it. That's going to be really important. The longer it goes by where we're effectively a closed economy is, a, I believe, a multiplier effect in terms of the impact in terms of recovery down the road. And so I really think it's important for us to continue kind of moving in that direction. As the subsidies eventually do wear off, I am concerned about where does that leave our underlying economy? And I'm hoping that it's going to be a really delicate balancing act and the government's going to do a great job making sure we're seeing a shift in productivity and encouraging companies to go out and invest and feel safe to invest versus just pull the subsidies you know, away from the general population. I think it is important to deploy kind of new capital or subsidies in the market and link it to successful outcomes. And I, I'm not really seeing that right now, but I think the more you could tie capital deployed from the federal and provincial level down to the corporate level and link it to job creation, I think that's a good thing. And I'm hoping they're going to be moving further into that direction. That would be kind of my overlying view as it relates to the economy today. I think that's going to filter down to the apartment space, which is probably the most defensive asset class alongside industrial for different reasons in the real estate sector. Ultimately, people have to live somewhere. Rental especially is more defensive than for sale housing. And so I think we're going to continue to see you know, general robustness in the market. There is a ton of supply that has come on. On a relative basis, there's a ton of supply that's come on, both on the condo side and purpose-built rental sector. 
That being said, the immigration story that that was supposed to, you know, go out and, and directly address is not there. So we've ripped out, you know, call it what's going to end up being a year, maybe even longer of immigration out of the system, which is creating an imbalanced market. Then we're seeing structural vacancy back up. We're seeing softer rental tones happen in the market. And that effective rents have really dropped with rent incentives and below the line inducements. So I, I think it's going to be a period of time for that to come back. I'm a big reversion to the mean type of guy. And so when we're underwriting new deals, you know, we're really making a revenue call in four to five years from now. And I think we will be, albeit it's going to be on bumpy road, but we will get back to a more normalized economy in five, six, seven years from now. I truly believe that. I'm still very positive about the apartment sector, especially relative to other asset classes. We're going to continue to invest, whether it's in, you know, the class B sector or the classic sector in terms of new development. We're also going to look at related themes like affordable housing development, like assisted living and long-term care, where we could really bolt onto our existing service business on the property management and construction development management side of things. That's an interesting comment, Adrian. We'll go there maybe next. We've talked to historically, and we as in the Royal We about apartments is you know, the fundamentals of you know, immigration and, and employment. And I think you had kind of given some timeframes, but I, I mean, just maybe reiterate, like, what's the horizon you think it'll take for us to get back to regular immigration levels, regular employment levels? Like you kind of said five, six years. That, is, that seems long to me, but you're smarter than I am. That's for sure. Is that kind of a, a realistic view? Is that how you're kind of approaching the business? No. So I would say that's kind of more of a holistic view than specifically talking about an immigration recovery forecast. I think immigration recovers as and when we are close to some form of vaccine or therapeutic that is going to release all you know general anxiety. And it sounds like, given what's happening on the healthcare side of things, that we're probably you know six to twelve months away. That mass production tack another six months beyond that. So you could see it probably kind of figuring itself out in summer to end of next year. That's from a vaccine therapeutics side of things. So I, I could see following that immigration should be able to ramp up. And I think relative to other economies and other geographies around the world, Canada is still going to be a very attractive place to immigrate to. It still has a very strong underlying story. And I think we will ramp back up, but it's not like we're going to double up and catch up for the lost immigration year, year and a half or two years that we're going to experience. As it relates to the overall economy, I'm not saying that we're going to see an economic recovery in five years. It's going to take five years to recover. I just think that's a conservative view that we're eventually going to revert back to normal course, whether that happens in two, three years, or that's going to take a kind of five-year outlook. It's kind of inconsequential. I think the backstop of five years feels like a very comfortable assumption to be making, but the concept of us getting into development and ultimately making a revenue call in our business, that's five years out. And so by buying land today and starting construction, starting development, we're getting comfortable with the fact that what that revenue number could look like in year five. And at that point, I do think we'll probably be back to some sort of normal course environment. And that's how we're underwriting our deals. So, so maybe now development timelines being so long will be a blessing in that it gives the economy so much time to recover and doctors to work through a vaccine. You mentioned assisted living space. Was that a decision pre or post COVID? And did COVID have any impact on that? Yeah, so it definitely had a material impact on it. We've looked at the sector at a very high level, but decided as an entry point for Fitzrovia was to really focus on the Class A sector. 
I think it's a big problem in our society. I'd love to be able, we have the expertise for it. We got the platform for it. It's a sector that we're spending a lot of time on, a theme we're spending a lot of time on. And, you know, part of Fitzrovia is not only to generate returns for our investors, but also be very involved in city building and to be a benefit to society. And we feel that that's a very good fit for our program. This is going to sound negative and it's not. It's more just about, I just want to dive a little bit deeper into the logic of taking that route. We had a, a guest on First National employee named Brian Kimmel, who's, who's assisted living finance sort of guru. And when we asked him, you know, what about new entrants into this space? His very candid response was like, don't, just don't get involved, right? It's saturated. It's really, really hard. It's more of an operations business. And I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm just curious. Just, I mean, there's, there's obstacles there. Maybe just talk through how those conversations have gone with inside your institution. Yeah, it's definitely less of a traditional real estate play. It's more of an operating business. You're bang on. And I'm going to give you more of a hokey answer. If you look at the Class A multifamily buildings that we're going to be developing in the market, we have some really, really creative operating elements of those assets. We're not just focused on the brick and mortars. I just think it's a natural extension to what we're already doing. We're already treating our buildings like they are hotels. And so there's a high level of service attached to it. There's a lot of partnership deals that we've been able to leverage given our scale. And I think we could easily, not easily, but we could pivot. We have the ability to pivot in some of those related sectors and assisted living would be one of those. Let me just jump on to help you or not help you. But I mean, I remember from our previous conversation, you know, things like you're branding your gyms, you're, you're putting a whole bunch of experiential you know, attributes to your buildings, which are more operational in nature. So I, I, I'm kind of explaining for the listeners that may not have heard the previous episode that that is kind of in line with the way that you guys, um, you know, operate and, and, and approach the industry. Let's move to land acquisition. You kind of mentioned it earlier. How has that been now? I mean, are you active? Are you looking at land? I'm, we recently interviewed a broker in that space and said that they're seeing a lot of velocity and a lot of land coming online. Are you participating? Yeah, we're definitely seeing a lot of opportunities. I don't know how deep the buyer pool is. If I was a condo developer right now, making a revenue call that you're going to sell off plan the next 12 months feels like a fairly bold call. And so we're just not seeing, and this is anecdotally talking to the brokers on the condo side, we're just not seeing the same depth of buyer group that we would have saw you know, Q1 or late last year. But we're definitely looking at opportunities. We had a large deal under contract. Like I said, it's going to be closing at the end of this month. We are trying to find creative ways to play more of the middle market, meat of the market type opportunities. So that's going to more urban fringe or suburban urban master plans. We continue to spend a lot of time there. Thankfully, we have great capital partners that have a long-term focus. And this is a developed core program. So we are still in the market looking for opportunities. And we'd like to do one or two more deals by the end of this year. Adrian, you kind of touched on it there about not running into the condo developers, you know, when you're looking at some of these opportunities. The traditional math of, you know, condo versus apartment has historically not been been in an apartment's favor. If you're trying to buy land in an open bid process at market rates, have the scales tipped towards apartments on that, on that same math that did not favor our favorite asset class just a couple of months ago? It's definitely been equalized to a degree. I don't know if it's on par, and I don't think it's swung to the apartment's favor. I think the concept of selling off plan versus underwriting you know, revenue line in five years does give us an advantage. The operating leverage and financial leverage on a condo deal, regardless, still creates a lot of value simply through deal structure. We're closer. Condo guys don't have as much of an advantage as they did you know, early 
this year, like pre-COVID. But I, I think both are, you know, on a closer playing field right now. The DC deferral certainly helps. Uh, visibility around, you know, what is the interest rate that's going to be attached to that deferral is going to be really interesting. But call it, that's another 100 basis points of, of enhanced value to, you know, what the condo guys are seeing. But the fact that you can leverage your deposits as effectively zero interest mez in your deal uh, enhances a lot of value, which we don't have access to. Let's stick on financing, you know, Adam, and my favorite favorite topic. You brought it up. We didn't bring it up. That must be, I mean, you've got, you know, multiple buildings kind of coming to coming to completion. You must be sort of I'm licking your chops, looking at, you know, the interest rates today. I'm assuming you're going CMHC. You know, right now we're seeing five and even 10 years and sort of that 150 to 170 basis points, like all in coupon. I mean, you must you must be almost be thankful that you're going to get an opportunity to lock in 10, 15, 20 years at what is effectively inflationary rate. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, I, I think the benefits on the financing side are, will probably neutralize some of the softness in the market in terms of top line revenue, right? So part of the reason, obviously, that we're seeing interest rates at an all-time low is the fact that we have a very soft economic market and they're trying to stimulate in some capacity. And so we are seeing top-line revenue getting eroded. Rental rates are softer. We're seeing net effective rates, which is where I started, certainly softer to the tune of double digits, let's say 10%. So we definitely need both working together. It allows for the economics to still be feasible to develop, allocate capital to the sector. But I wouldn't say it's a panacea. It's offset some of the softness that's happening in terms of your top-line revenue number. Well, maybe we can talk about uh, underwriting and performance, you know, for a bit. I mean, I assume that everybody's probably had to adjust their numbers, some favorably, as you mentioned, the interest rates and some some working against. But if we're looking at, you know, the expenses, because ultimately, you know, lenders and builders care about NOI. Ultimately, that's the number they care about above, you know, even, you know, gross rent. Do you look at the expense side? I mean, most new builds are contemplated to have the most efficient you know, utility cost programs in place. But are you doing anything unique in that regards to lower some of your expenses to increase NOI? Yeah, so one of the things we are doing that I don't think a lot of multifamily guys are following the same strategies, B2 thermal submeters. That is one to kind of reclaim. I'd say everything else is pretty much normal course, you know, integrated LED lights, oxygen sensors in the hallways, trying to be as smart as possible there. We're trying to set up triple net leases as much as possible as it relates to the utility consumption. So definitely water gets passed through to tenants. You're right. There's a lot of operating leverage in these deals. There's a certain element that's fixed costs. If you see rates dropping, we saw the benefit of that in a rising market over the last couple of years with, you know, high single digits year over year rent increases. But conversely, with the softening in the market, we're definitely seeing expense ratios under pressure. I would also look at the insurance market where we're seeing you know, significant bumps in the pricing of insurance for multifamily buildings today. So it's something we're continuing to monitor. It's such a fluid market. Rates are moving around. Incentives are moving around. Expense line items are moving around. So we're still trying to get a handle ultimately what that's going to look like as we near completion on our first two buildings. Like, to your point that we are in an interesting time when you do have two projects completing, do you ever go back and look at you know version 1.0 of your pro forma to see how it's actually ending up in the market today over you know multi-year time horizon? Yeah, absolutely. We do that all the time. If you look at when we first started Fitzrovia, where we ultimately thought rents were going to be delivered to, even in a softer market, just because we saw so much rent growth over the last number of years ahead of that, which is great. Keeping construction costs and schedule intact was 
not problematic, but definitely required a lot of grinding on our end and on the team's end to, to make sure we stayed within budget. We've done that successfully across the board. We're over 95% tendered across, you know, four projects and we're going to be 95% tendered on our project in the next three, four months. So I'd say overall, uh, the feasibility of those projects are all tracking really well relative to day one underwriting, but it's definitely, you know, a changing market that we're continuing to monitor. We're kind of bouncing around a little bit, but as I'm sitting here, I'm thinking about a comment you made about, you know, having a pause on one of your developments. And I think in general, I'm just curious how COVID has impacted your cost side on your construction and particularly just what kind of delays you're, you're experiencing. We definitely experienced a couple weeks of delays, early days. I think that's more than been reclaimed through the noise exemption bylaw that's been extended to cover those seven-day-a-week provisions. Can you ex- so that, expand on that? What do you mean? What, what does that allow for you to do, just so those that may be unfamiliar? Yeah, so you basically are allowed to work seven days a week from 6 a.m. in the morning to 10 p.m. at night. So that allows you to run a double shift if need be. If there's a certain trade that has access to more men, especially if they're peace workers, we could allocate more men and spread them, you know, throughout the day or, you know, potentially there's a number of cases where we were even working on Sundays. So that's allowed us to pick some of that time back up. Uh, you'll see some of the, that erosion, obviously, in your financing costs in terms of economics or schedule delays, but more importantly, in your general conditions which are your division one part of your budget, which is all your on-site staff, your kind of variable component to your development costs. Call it, let's say 10% of your overall hard cost budget. You'll see obviously some, some pressure there. But overall, we've done a good job mitigating any COVID-related delays. And do you do have uh, fears of a, of a second wave or anything down the road that could cause further delays? Is there any planning you can do now to account for that? Or is it just uh, you got to roll with the punches as a developer I think we've gotten a lot smarter. We're not we're not going to be caught as flat footed as everyone was in the market. It was you know very much a, a new situation that everyone was facing. All of our sites have access to a lot of PPE. We have a partnership with the Cleveland Clinic, so all of our trades and their families have access to Cleveland Clinic staff. Through our exclusive partnership deal with them, so if anyone's got any anxiety, they're feeling ill, they can speak to a doctor right away. We're definitely practicing social distancing. The cleanliness component is very much all over our site. We have a very intense screening exercise as well for anyone that's coming on our site. Their temperatures are being checked. So we're definitely trying to be as proactive as possible. It's definitely not bulletproof. Just that is what it is right now. These are active fluid development sites or construction sites, but we're doing our best to be as diligent as possible through that process. As it relates to concerns around a second wave, like I'm definitely not you know, a healthcare expert I'm definitely concerned about it. I think it feels like most people in the planet are. I think it's a real risk, especially as the economy continues to open up and we don't have a vaccine that could continue to could accelerate. We could see a kind of negative reaction there. We're seeing that in lots of gateway cities or even kind of large metros in Canada where it was largely under control. It felt like things were opening back up. And Vancouver is a great example. Now we're seeing you know, recent surge. So always concerned there. I feel like the government's done a really great job, uh, especially the provincial government in guiding people. I feel like the general population's taking it very seriously. And I think that's all going to bode well for us, but it's always a risk. It sounds like you're adapting to the headwinds. Given the current climate though, on the fundraising side, Groups providing funds, are they, are they pulling back at all? I know, I know you're a little unique in that you deal with very large institutions, so maybe you can't speak to 
anything other than that. But are people still as eager to invest in apartment development specifically? Because that's that's what you're you're doing a lot of right now. Yeah, we're still seeing a lot of institutional demand for apartment development specifically. It's not definitely as as wide as it as it was back in you know Q one, call it pre COVID. There's still a lot of institutional appetite. And there's a lot of capital that is waiting on the sidelines to come into the space. You are seeing some large players that are very much measured in today's environment. Thankfully, our capital partners are so very active and like the risk just returns and, and like how we're executing. But we're definitely seeing almost a tale of two camps: institutions that want to deploy and institutions that you know like what they see but are definitely waiting on the sidelines until things become a little more solidified as it relates to the economy and as it relates to some of the sector fundamentals. Are you still active right now looking for more capital? We're having conversations to expand our capital group, but we just have very, very supportive capital partners. And right now, you know, they're really seeing all of our deals and are reacting very quickly. And they've just been amazing to deal with. You know, I think just given the longevity and given the breadth of maybe miracles that we're getting into, it's always prudent to expand some of those relationships. But right now, we really have a great group that are really seeing all of our deal flow and investing. You're very fortunate, it sounds like. Adrian, we're, we're almost done here. So I have the last sort of line of questioning is really around, I mean, you're, you're still in growth mode, right? You've talked about bringing a bunch of different functions of your entire operations sort of in-house, whether it be property management or, or construction management. Just talk about what it's been like being at the helm of this growing ship through this weird, crazy world that we live in over the last six months. I think it's tested a lot of people. I don't mean to sound hokey. You know, absolutely love what I do, we do, you know, what we're about. It's a tremendous passion of, of mine. And I've been very fortunate to assemble a team and the people that are, are leading kind of certain verticals have done an incredible job being an ambassador in kind of building out their, also their respective teams. And we have just a great group of people that are highly motivated, you know, very passionate about what we do. And want to really truly make a difference. If they're sitting in their condo or the living room, there's a tremendous motivation and eagerness that I saw, you know, throughout COVID. And that was really, really great to see. It's just really good positive energy within the team. We have a policy to be extremely transparent. So, you know, we had a weekly town hall for the last couple of months. So Tuesday afternoons, we would talk about everything: the wins, the losses, lessons learned, new initiatives that we're looking at, how we're executing. And that was just really kind of great to keep everyone engaged. And then we would also have our core teenies, which a lot of companies are doing on Friday afternoons, to really get to know one another. So you know, really try to engage as much as possible. I was doing a lot of one-on-one calls just to check in on people. But I would say during a really difficult time and also talking to other colleagues in the industry and other people that are running companies, I just felt very fortunate that everyone came to work every day or you know, worked in their residence with a very good positive energy. And that resonated when I talked to them, when they came on group calls. I just feel very fortunate that we have that form of culture at Fitzrovia. Well, on the topic of culture, in our last episode, you talked about investing in people and building a great team. And it sounds like you're you know, reaping the benefits of that now that uh, we're in a high-stress environment. Have you had hires that came on in this world where nobody's meeting, where you've got parts of your team now that have never had a lot of quality time in office? And how do you find it is you know, ramping them up to team standard that you had pre-COVID? Yeah, it, it, for sure. So we went from probably 18 people 
in Q1 to close to 30 people today. So there's a number of hires that joined when everyone was essentially working from home. Right now, we do have a Monday, Wednesday, Friday crew and a Tuesday, Thursday crew. So everyone who got hired is being integrated face-to-face with the rest of the team. So that's been really helpful. But it's really been through Zoom or Microsoft team calls and some of the social events that we've held on Friday afternoons to you know make sure that they were integrated with the rest of the team. I would also say our group leads have done a really good job making sure any new joiner was introduced to the rest of the team and you know smaller kind of group sessions or breakout sessions that they felt that they're integrating across other business lines. And that was really important. Very much a tricky concept. A lot of companies were going through it. And, you know, it was a little bit of an awkward moment, especially the first couple of days. But, you know, the team did a really good job bringing all those new joiners up to speak quickly. Yeah, I mean, you are in a somewhat unique position. You were in hockey stick growth mode in the last couple of years and trying to maintain it through this is a little tougher, but it sounds like you've got a handle on it. Adrian, I know that, uh, you know, time is precious and, and you, you've got... He's, to got, a, he's, got, a, he's got an event to get to. It's Friday afternoon. <laughs> he's, got, uh, <laughs> he's got some drinks to be had with his colleagues. I don't blame him. <laughs> Yeah, Friday's Where's our invite? Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, well, guys, thank you so much for inviting me back on your show. I love your show, and you guys do a really good job of running the podcast. And and not only are great bankers, but also really good interviews. So, thank you very much for hosting me again. After this, we do have the after show coming up. Where Aaron and I are going to share our thoughts on the episode. We want to thank First National for powering the podcast forum for setting up the second interview with Adrian. It's been great. And we want to thank our sponsor for this episode, Wise Meter Solutions, is Canada's leading provider of submetering and utility expense management services. Let us help you achieve your goals, be they a greener operation or financial performance, reflecting a $45,000 increase per suite in property value. With 185,000 suites under contract, Wise is your go-to partner. Thanks again, Adrian. And up next is the after show. All right, welcome back to the commercial real estate after show. Great interview with Adrian Roca. I mean, geez, that man is very, very intelligent. Like, I always enjoy talking to him. I'm going to lead something off for us for our conversation. We can get into more about what Adrian had said specifically, but everybody knows Adam and I work for First National. We're the largest apartment lender in the country. And so apartments are kind of our thing. As we've been interviewing all sorts of people within the industry over the last couple of months, I'm, I'm finding myself saying, you know, historically, apartments are kind of boring, right? Like it's vacancies have been 2%, 1%, 3% for, I don't know, a couple of decades. Everybody needs a place to sleep, yada, yada, yada. Cash flow, stability and durability of cash flow, everybody talks about. So it's been really kind of a boring asset, right? Retail's got some stuff going on, obviously, obvious. Historically, I'm talking about. But in COVID, you know, retail is interesting because e-commerce, we all knew e-commerce was coming. So, I mean, retail's really not an interesting conversation. We all know that retail is in a very, very serious situation. There's going to be a lot of change to the retail space. It's not dynamic, really. It's kind of simple. I mean, I guess office might be, be close because you know, there's this whole work from home dynamic and what happens to the office leases. Industrial actually is kind of boring in the sense that everybody knows that industrial is in its crazy growth mode. Leases are going up. The demand is going up. We, we talk about and we hear it from our, from our guests about sort of the repatriation of critical supply chains, meaning you know, there's just going to be a greater demand for industrial use. Apartments is really interesting because, and I'm not selling apartments, but I'm just talking about just what the dynamic of what's going on in the apartment space. You've got some government intervention for, you know, CERB, of course, right? The Canadian Emergency Response 
plan and how that's allowing people to stay in their residence and allowing people to make their rents. One of the biggest factors of apartments and the strength of apartments was the consistency of immigration to the country, right? It was 350,000 and growing new immigrants every year to Canada, which was a great sort of demand side. And then, of course, we always had really strong employment numbers in Canada, which, of course, you know, supports the underlying economics of, of apartments. We've got, I don't even know what the numbers, I don't even know what to believe the numbers are in Canada as far as employment goes today. I don't think anybody really has their finger on, on, on that. Of course, immigration is zero for the effectively. So the basic fundamentals of apartments are now are gone temporarily. For how long, who knows? The duration of that, of course, who knows? And what that implication is in the long run. And I think there's more impact ultimately of this COVID on apartments, maybe not negatively. It may just be you know, a blip. But anyway, I, just, I just find apartments has been the, the sort of the ugly kid that's just the boring old asset class in the, in the sort of the four food groups. And all of a sudden, there's way more interesting sort of dynamics going on as it relates to just what's happening with the pandemic. I also think my children are beautiful too. You know, my favorite asset class is getting his time in the sun. And <laughs> I mean, even previous to, uh, to the pandemic, apartments had really been on a great trajectory. I started at First National in 2012 and the asset class was probably just on the cusp of, of really getting going. But by 2014, 15, 16, you know, the growth was incredible and it, it was continuing right up until the pandemic hit. You know, some turbulence in, in the air now. But that being said, the big selling feature of apartments for the longest time was they're very good in tough times. When it's an amazing time, nobody really cares about that. You're not thinking about downside. But now that we are in a very serious situation, apartments have borne that out. They are performing beautifully. You know, even some of the you know the fears that we had around rent collections on the first of each month. You know, we talked about April one and May one, and we talked a bit about June. And now we've kind of stopped talking about the first of the month rent collection because the assumption is it's going to be somewhere in the mid nineties, if not high nineties. It's performing wonderfully throughout. We did talk about the episode as well. Of course, interest rates are helping that investment class in that they are incredibly low right now, and will probably remain so for the foreseeable future. But apartments are absolutely, you know, delivering as promised for people uh, smart or lucky enough to invest in them over the last well, couple of decades. And let, and let me let me qualify my comments. I mean, we've been pre-COVID, particularly what do they call it, MTV, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver. I mean, vacancy rates were zero point something, right? Like it was unhealthy levels of demand. And at the same time, the amount of capital being in, in pushed into into apartments. I mean, use RioCan as the simplest example. You know, diversifying out of you know, retail specifically, and, and good for them for doing that into, you know, real can living and and, and, and intensifying their space. So that I think there's competing forces that here are, are likely apartments end up continuing to grow, maybe not at the pace they were pre-COVID, but certainly continuing. I just find it's, it, it was a boring asset class, I guess is my point. Now it's actually got some interest to it. It's a little bit more interesting than it used to be. So why do we do so many podcasts about them if they're boring? <laughs> well, yeah, because we work for, well, I, I don't know. I, I guess because I find them interesting and that's our, that's our livelihood. And I know, yeah. we know apartments better than anything else, right? So, uh, Yeah, absolutely. Start talking about gross retail leases and I get lost, right? I don't know. I don't know how to structure a gross retail lease, but I, I certainly know how to, how to underwrite a, an apartment building. Let's talk about Adrian and, and kind of some of the comments he made. I found it interesting that they were kind of pivoting or not pivoting, but at least expanding their horizons to assisted living. Yeah, that was news to me as well. I mean, I speak to Adrian on a semi-regular basis and obviously 
He's got, a, a, as I said a couple times during the episode, a very big pipeline of, of units coming to market. And as far as I knew, he was st- staying in that lane, just going to be you know, keep pumping out high quality units. So this is, uh, yeah, it's news to me. I mean, he's not wrong. That you know, they you can read all the the demographic information about why that's going to be a very a very good space to be in for the next couple of decades. In terms of the construction side, I don't believe, I mean, I can't speak to it too intelligently, but I don't believe that the construction is that different. Obviously, once you start operating them, then as you said in the episode, there is the operation side of assisted living. There is a way larger business component to it than just handing somebody a key and waiting for the first of the month rent check yeah. to, to simplify the, the, the landlord experience. But the underwriting, the, you know, they, they do cash flow beautifully. They're, they're a fantastic uh, asset class to be in. Yeah, and he wasn't talking about nursing homes or sort of, uh, you know, the major operations. And if you recall, for any of those that have listened to the previous podcast, and I encourage you to go back, one of the things that I found really fascinating about their business model is, you know, they put the gyms on the top floor and they're not outsourcing, they're branding the gyms and they're operating the gyms. I think he was talking about some other some other operations within the building that, that created an experience for the tenant. So they'd already kind of internalized this, the concept that they were going to run a business for each building, right? They weren't just going to lease a whole bunch of units and then outsource everything or you know hire a super and let it go. Like they were going to have other attractions within the individual assets. They were going to keep in-house, right? So they had kind of already built the infrastructure. They needed to run an operation. Transitioning to assisted living is probably a natural expansion for them. Uh, the other thing that he talked about was was fundraising. I'd, one thing I actually wished to, I'd asked him to clarify, he mentioned that there was a little bit of a diminishment in interest in investment, which makes sense with obviously everything going into the market. It's not a, it's not a, a comment on investment in, in Adrian's project specifically, but how much of that diminishment is going to limit the supply going forward because before it was very frothy. So if you if you just take the froth off the top, you can still have a pretty healthy investment market and there's be plenty of capital available. So I wish I wish I asked him actually how much interest has gone down. Will there be projects that can't find funding? I mean, I, I'm not his. He's he's very well set up with large institutional players. But it'd be interesting to know if there would be a slowdown on the supply side, which then has the continued problem of low vacancy and theoretically pressure on rents to go back up. I mean, I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth now because I, I was just talking about how there's some headwinds with the apartment space. But at the same time, I don't think there's ever going to be a slowdown, right? I think there's too much capital chasing that long-term yield. I think, you know, he had mentioned that the difference, the delta between sort of condo pro forma and apartment pro forma are, are closing in on one another. That's indicative of just more capital coming into apartments. And we've talked about this so many times. If you are a build and hold, even if you're a merchant developer, there's just so much demand for the product. You know, whether you're selling a selling an empty asset after you built it or you're building it and holding it for 30 years, there's just so many ways to make the numbers work now. Assuming you can buy the land at a, at a cost that, that makes sense. And it sounds like more and more, those apartment owners, apartment developers are getting um, closer to the condo costs. Yeah, not having to, to duke it out with... Uh... A bunch of condo developers whose performers just have drastically different outcomes, and yeah, you, you can't compete. On the topic of performers, I can ask you, Aaron, because Aaron, prior to being in, in operations at First National, was in a, a similar role to me, just chasing around deals and, and doing deals. Did you ever take a look at a construction project you worked on and the very first time you underwrite it? Because the typical process is we'll underwrite it, you know, very early on, and then. Obviously, pro formas get updated and tweaked and metrics change and you adapt it over time. And 
by the time you're, you know, you've completed and built it, you're on the 37th iteration of the underwriting. But did you ever go back and look at your round one assumptions and see uh, how far off you were? And not a criticism of being off, markets change. <laughs> did you ever do no, that process? No, they were always dead on. I was always right the very first time I did it. <laughs> Not a beep out of line, just never. Yeah, no, never. I was a hundred percent accurate every time. No, and that's I mean, that's a funny I mean, for those listening that are in that not even lending space, but I think in every single part of the real estate community, you kind of do that, right? You have to bake a whole bunch of assumptions and then slowly but surely as the deal progresses, those assumptions become you know, crystallized. And you can be wrong. And sometimes you are. I mean, I think inevitably you always are. That's the whole problem with assumptions, right? Like you, know, you and I have talked about this so many times and now we're getting into the weeds. But, you know, that sort of discounted cash flow approach, you just have to make 100 assumptions. I mean, it seems like such a silly way to, to try to figure out what the value is or, you know, you know what your underwriting is going to look like when you just, you have to just basically throw a dart at a wall and say, okay, well, there's, that's what that number is going to look like in 10 years from now, right? Like, <laughs> it's, it's, My dad is a log developer has always said, it's, uh, it's better to be lucky than smart. You know, if you're going to be wrong, an assumption hopefully is to the right, to the correct side, and uh, you end up looking at genius, make some money, but it, it can go against you. I remember a while ago seeing, I think I might have mentioned this podcast before, but I you know tend to repeat myself. Saw a pro forma for a a medical center, and at the time we thought we were in historic lows. This was around 2016 when interest rates were were also very low, not as low as they are now, and the pro forma included a 15 year projection that had interest rates exactly where they were on that day for the next 15 years. And I remember thinking at the time, if you're relying on having historic lows hang on for a 15-year time horizon, that's pretty tough. But then now here we are, four years later, interest rates have gone down. So his performance is looking pretty great. You know, maybe I missed that one. <laughs> There's the perfect example. People have been talking about interest rates going up since I started in the industry 12 years ago, and they've just continually gone down as one of the largest, if not the largest expense in real estate is the financing on your property. And everybody's been assuming that cost is going to go up and yet it's gone the opposite direction. So we've all been wrong. I don't know anybody that said, oh no, they're going to go down forever, right? So, (laughs) And every time that interest rates have gone up, more than, I'll say 40 beeps, I'll set as the over-under, 40 beeps in a short period of time. When they go up, everybody goes, this is it. We've been predicting this for years. It's happening now. And then, of course, you get a negative headline. Interest rates go right back down where they were. And everybody gets, goes back to predicting that they're going to go up soon. Of course, they will sooner or later. But uh, yeah, it, I that's... Uh, I don't know. Maybe uh, they won't. Maybe they won't, Adam. Maybe the, my assumption is they will not. They're going to stay <laughs> at this low or negative for history in perpetuity. I'm going to edit us going into one of the older podcasts and predicting interest rates going down now to make us look <laughs> smart. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. yeah. I did not see this coming. Aaron, is that uh, is that it? I think that's good. Yeah, it is. It is now, of course, uh, you know, a sunny Friday afternoon. So we're going to go about our go about our lives here. But thank you, everybody, so much for listening to the after show. I hope you enjoyed Aaron's and mine's thoughts on the episode we just did with Adrian Rocca. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.